reading. We walk, we've been walking through Who's Your One and, and talking about our intentionality of sharing Jesus with those that we know don't know him. And that we are called as Christians to be those who testify and witness about the goodness of who Jesus is and the redemption that's found only in him. We've been praying, hopefully you've been praying for that one person that you know of who isn't saved, who needs to hear about Jesus and asking God to help you to know uh, how to build a relationship with them, how to take Jesus to them and how to share, how to urge them to trust in Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, the motivation, one of the motivators behind this is the concept of hell and the teaching of Jesus on hell. See, Many people just equate Old Testament God with the vengeful, wrathful God, and he's the one who punishes. He's the one who has judgment. But then New Testament God is the loving, caring, compassionate one. Doesn't really care about what you do in your life. Isn't really going to hold you to anything. He just wants you to try better, try harder, uh, try not to, to mess up so much. And, but ultimately, he's just going to love you, right? He, uh, Jesus isn't going to judge. He's just simply going to welcome you. He's your buddy. He's your pal. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't teach that. Um, and while we today may want to turn what he said and twist it to mean that, that's not what he teaches. Um, and we see different parts of the scriptures that show us what hell is, what it's like, and why it's such a serious matter. And so I want to bring to you this parable that is found in Luke chapter 16. Now, the context of this is Jesus is teaching several parables in a row. And here we find he moves into another one. We're going to see that from the very, very beginning. But this is Jesus' teaching, right? Loving Jesus who doesn't care what you do with your life. Just try harder. Try not to be a bad, right? That Jesus who isn't going to condemn you. He's not going to judge. He's just you know, going to welcome you in. That Jesus is the one who teaches this parable. Now, before we study it, we do need to understand that this is a parable, which means that we can have a tendency to turn details into things that aren't necessarily being said. So we have to caution that we don't build our entire theology off of this one verse, off this one section. But how does it fit with the rest of Scripture and what it teaches? And I believe there are a few things I want to point out to you this morning from this text that will help us to understand why hell is such a serious matter and why we would want to tell people about the good news of Jesus. And his life, death, and resurrection in their place. I want to start off by sharing with you this morning two different lives. There are two different lives that are laid out to us in verses 19 through 21. Jesus begins teaching and he tells us there are two individuals in this parable. First, he prefaces it as a parable because he uses the common phrasing, there was a rich man. Some versions have, there was a certain rich man. That's, a, that's a, a common way of introducing a parable to someone. There was a certain man, a certain rich man, and we're told about this rich man. So first, we're introduced to the rich man, and he is described as being clothed in purple and fine linen and feasting every day. What marks this rich man? Well, he's got... Clothed, he's clothed in purple. That tells us a little bit about him. Because in order to be clothed in purple, you had to have at least some money. Because purple was not an inexpensive color 
to use to make clothes. It was very costly to produce. And someone who was wearing purple was someone who would probably most likely be affluent in some way. Acts chapter 16, we're introduced to Lydia, who was also a seller of purple. Right? That tells us a little bit about her. She was probably affluent. She probably had uh, money. So this rich man is clothed in purple, and he's wearing fine linen. Right? The best clothes, right? Nice stuff. And he feasted sumptuously every day. Okay, so the idea, <laughs> the idea of feasting sumptuously is the idea of a luxurious life. Because back in those days, not everyone got to feast. And even if you did get to feast, you didn't feast every day. To feast every day, to be clothed in linen, and to have purple garments is a, they're all three descriptors of someone who had all of the current things in this life that could bring satisfaction. It is to live an enjoyable, satisfied, glad life. Everyone in this parable would want to be the rich man, right? Nice clothes, affluent, feasting sumptuously every day. But then he's contrasted. Because after the rich man, we're told there was a poor man. By the way, we're given his name. We're not given the rich man's name. Maybe that was on purpose. But we're given the poor man's name. His name is Lazarus, which means he whom God has helped. And Lazarus has a very stark contrasting life to the rich man. While the rich man has purple clothes and fine linens and feasts sumptuously every day, guess what the poor man's life is made up of? Sores. Desiring to be fed. Dogs licking. You see the contrast? These are two opposite ends of the spectrum. One who had everything this life could offer. The other who is so miserable and seems to have nothing of joy and gladness in this life. We have the tale of two different lives. Notice that the rich man appears to have no need of anything while the poor man needs everything. And he desires even to be fed while the rich man is feasting every day. The poor man desires to be fed not with all the food but with just the crumbs that would fall off the table. One who had everything and one who had nothing. And then Jesus tells us in the parable that even the dogs came to lick his sores. That's a, that's a first century Jewish way of saying he is utterly miserable and this is a disgusting picture. Because by, just so you know, back then dogs were not like man's best friend. They were, they were disgusting creatures. So there's a tale of two men, but then we find that there is a commonality between them, right? While they may have different circumstances in life, guess what? They have the same conclusion. 
The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died. So even though they had totally different circumstances in their life, even though their lives couldn't have looked more different, guess what? Both are dead. See, there's no... It doesn't matter your background, what your family history is, what you do for a living, uh, how much money you have, how much you don't have. doesn't matter what kind of hobbies you have. In the end, everyone comes to the same conclusion. Both died. And as such, the question would be, well, now what? Both lived starkly different lives, one of plenty and one of nothing, so what would happen when they both met the same fate? Now again, because it's a parable, we don't want to try to dive into every little detail and bring something out of it because that may not be what Jesus intended. And some would go so far as to say, look, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died and he was buried. There's no mention of burial. I don't know if that's significant. I just know that there's different details that are added to each one. The key to this whole thing is they're both dead. And as such, something changes in death. Both the rich and the poor wind up in the same place, dead. But that doesn't mean that's where they remain. Because in verse 23, while we're told both die, they meet the same conclusion to this physical life, there are two destinations that are totally different. Just as they live two different lives on earth, they also have two different destinations after death. Because we're told that the rich man died and was buried, and where is he found? In Hades, which is a biblical term for the grave, but also in many sections, a particular term describing hell. By the way, this is, this is, in my opinion, this is the temporary place the unrighteous go to when they die. You understand what I mean by that? There's a permanent place the unrighteous will be after Jesus returns, and that's called the lake of fire, right? That's, that's the ultimate dealing with all sin and judgment towards sin. But until that day, there is already suffering occurring in Hades. And this is viewed as being separated from where the poor man is. Because guess what? We're told the rich man lifted up his eyes saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Far off is a key thing. Jesus is teaching that these are two distinct locales, distinct places. One is in Hades. The other is at the side of Abraham, which, by the way, is a biblical way, a biblical term for referring to being with God. Because what would the Jewish people have assumed about Abraham? Was he going to be in Hades or with God? Right. So to say he's at Abraham's side is a way of saying he's with 
God. And the poor man is with Abraham who is with God. So what is this saying about the poor man? He is with God. You with me? So he's using phrasing to depict that one, the rich man is in Hades, and two, the poor man is at Abraham's side, which was a way of saying in the presence of God. Two totally different destinations, and both of them have unique characteristics of them. In verse 24, we're told that the rich man called out, Father Abraham, right? There's that, that term of you're our father. So he seems to be saying, I'm part of your descendants. I, you're, you're my spiritual ancestor. You're my, my, my father. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Now, it's interesting that he seems to be commanding even Lazarus now. Like, it's, Lazarus would be like, bro, I'm not, I'm not your servant anymore. No, no, don't command me. But this picture here. I want you to see in Hades, there is, there is distinguishing characteristics. He says, I'm in anguish. I'm in anguish in this flame, he says, which is a biblical way of talking about judgment and suffering. Right? Fire is used often in the Bible to refer to judgment. And he says, I am in anguish. In this place, remember back in verse 23, he referred to it as torment. So the picture you're getting of Hades is torment, anguish. Go on to verse 25. Anguish again. By the way, anytime you study the Bible and you're studying a section and you see a, a word or a phrase repeated usually tells you pay attention to that word and phrasing. What Jesus is teaching is that in Hades, what it is marked by is torment, anguish, which is a word for pain, for agony. And then he goes on. He says, not only that, but there is a great chasm that exists between Hades and Abraham's side. These are two totally different destinations one marked by anguish, the other we see marked differently. Because if you look in verse 25, how is Abraham's side described? Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here. See, see. The rich man in Hades is marked by anguish and torment and suffering and agony and pain. And here, Abraham tells us that the poor man, Lazarus, at the side of Abraham is comforted. And I want you to notice, this is a passive tense word. It means Abraham, it means that, that the, the, the poor man is being comforted by someone. Now, I wonder who would be doing the comforting. I, I believe this is a picture that God is the one who comforts his children. And in his presence is not anguish and torment and suffering, but in his presence is comfort. Could there be a greater contrast between these two places? And that's what we get in this. 
Now I want you to notice that the rich man has two particular pleas to Abraham. If you go back to verse 24 and look, what's the first thing the rich man pleads for? He says, have mercy on me. What he pleads for is mercy from what? Anguish, right? Torment? Suffering? He pleads, God, have mercy on me. See, he can't earn his way out of it. He can't buy his way out of it. He only can rely on the mercy of God towards him. Abraham, I need mercy poured out on me. He says, I'm in anguish, verse 24, in this flame. Unfortunately, Abraham said, remember, in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad, but now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. That means set or placed or fastened between us. There is a chasm that exists between Hades and Abraham's side that cannot be removed by the rich man. It is fixed, and we're told the purpose of the chasm. In order that, that's a purposeful statement. In order that what? That you could not pass from one to the other. Uh-oh. Uh, all right, a little bit of a problem. What we're told is there are, two, there are only two possible destinations after life. There is Hades and Abraham's side. Jesus doesn't teach of a middle ground. And nowhere else in the scriptures do you see a teaching of a middle ground. There is Hades and Abraham's side. And he says there is a gulf that has been fixed between them, a chasm that has been fixed so that in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. That it was fixed, it was set, and no one could cross over between them. That leads to the second plea from the rich man. Because what does he ask for? Verse 27. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Meaning Lazarus. Send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. What is his plea? Number one is for mercy to be spared. To have comfort brought to him that he's not experiencing. Number two, for his family. If you can't cross over from one to the other, then someone needs to tell my brothers so that they can avoid what I'm going through. He says, I beg you to send him to my father's house so that he may warn them. This is the word testify, witness to them. He pleads for mercy, and then he pleads for his family. He wants someone like Lazarus to go to his family and testify to them that there is a place of torment, and there is a place of comfort, and he wants them to experience comfort above all. Verse 29, 
frightful words. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Right? What are Mo- what's, what, the reference to Moses and the prophets means what? What's he referring to? Moses and the prophets. True, but specifically. That's correct. Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, right? Because that's what they had at the time. They didn't have the, they didn't have the New Testament compiled for them yet. All they had was the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, and just so you know, he called Abraham his father, so he must be at least somewhat familiar with the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. And he says, send somebody to tell my brothers so that they don't wind up in this place of torment. And Abraham says, we have already. God already sent people to testify. You know who they were? Moses and the prophets. They wrote about this. You should have heard already. But here's the problem. The rich man had heard, but he didn't believe it. And so when the man, rich man says, why don't you send somebody to my family and tell them, Abraham said, God already did. He sent Moses and the prophets, and they testified. Verse 30, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Okay, so he just told us, here's the problem. Right? Jesus just taught us why one is in Hades and one is at Abraham's side. It wasn't because one was rich or one was poor, right? Having money doesn't mean you're going to hell. Praise Jesus, right? I mean, just because just you have some money doesn't mean this. This wasn't a picture of whether one was rich and one was poor, so one went off into separation from God and one went to his side. The problem and the difference between the rich man and the poor man was repentance. Because he says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that means listen to and believe. Not just hear it audibly, but listen to it and believe. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Is there a greater revelation of God to us than the scriptures themselves? Right? And Jesus is the embodiment, right? Jesus took on flesh. He was truth in flesh. They had everything. God had already shown them. But they didn't believe. Abraham says, even if they saw someone walk back from the dead, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe him either. Now, I find it, I don't know that, right? Jesus hasn't died and risen from the dead yet when he's saying this. But one can't help but look at it afterwards and go, that's kind of ironic. Right? Even if someone were to rise from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. You know, like the Son of God. I'm not saying that's what he's saying here, but I'm just saying it's somewhat ironic that he references that. Because they had the Hebrew Scriptures and they still did not believe. So the problem here was not money. The problem was unbelief. And that's why the rich man was in Hades and why the poor man was at the side of Abraham. If they wouldn't believe the word of God, they won't believe even the greatest miracle or sign that could be given to them. Abraham says, neither will they be persuaded, convinced, if someone should rise from the dead. Very interesting story, right? Very interesting parable. So what do we learn about hell from this parable? Right? Again, we don't want to go too far into bringing things out that weren't intended. 
But I think there are a few things that we could say Jesus teaches us about hell from this parable. Number one, hell is a real place. It has to be. Because if hell's not a real place, then neither is heaven. Because they're, ta they're taught next to each other. And so here we're told, not that hell is a figment of our imagination, but that's, it, it's an actual concern because it's a real place. We see that in verse 23. One was in Hades in torment, the other was at Abraham's side. I don't believe Jesus is speaking simply figuratively. I believe he's speaking of what is in reality. So not only is hell a real place, but number two, this parable seems to teach that not everyone's going to heaven. Verse 23 again shows us that there is a rich man who is not in heaven. That's problematic, right? Because we have people teaching you today, you can turn on your TV, you can read a ton of books, people telling you that hell is not a real place and everyone's going to heaven, that God's going to make an exception for everyone eventually. Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins, to basically teach that in the end, whether you believed in Jesus or not, when you stood before him, he was going to let you in because he's a, loving, he's a loving king and he can't stand to see people go off into judgment. So you were going to get in anyways. That's why he titled it Love Wins, is that everyone was going to heaven. Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus might have a problem with that because if so, if everyone's going to heaven, this parable makes no sense at all. Number three, hell is described as a place of torment and anguish. Verse 23, verse 25, verse 28. Now, that doesn't, I don't believe that means literally you're going to be set on fire, okay? These are symbols or pictures being given of what suffering looks like. But in the, in the separation from God, guess what is felt? Suffering, agony, pain. To be apart from God and his grace and mercy is to be left in anguish. That's why none of us should ever celebrate when someone dies who doesn't know Jesus. It's not a celebratory thing, it's, it's a tragic thing. It's a place separated from God who created them to worship him. Number four, not only is it a place of torment and anguish, but according to verses 25 through 26, it's a place without mercy and without comfort. What marked Abraham's side was mercy and comfort. What marked Hades or separation from God's mercy and comfort was that the only presence of God felt there was his wrath. Oh, how the rich man desired mercy and comfort but could not find it. Why? Because mercy and comfort is ultimately only found in God's gracious presence. What number am I on? Five, number five, this parable seems to teach that hell is a permanent place. Verse 26, we're told that not only are these two places real, there is a chasm that has been fixed 
in order that one could not pass from one to the other. That assumes that they are there for a duration. And I believe the rest of the scriptures teach that duration is eternity. But here's one big thing that comes out of verse 26 that you cannot get around. Is that the idea or teaching of purgatory is not biblical. Does everybody know what the teaching of purgatory is? That you can somehow move from one place to the other by doing whatever people say you can do to do it. At different points in time, it was if you paid enough money, you could move. Or if you prayed enough, you could move somebody. Or if you got baptized for somebody, you could move them. But the, the idea of purgatory is that even after you die, if you were to find yourself in Hades, you could do something or earn your way out of that and back into God's presence. Which, by the way, if that's the case, then why not just wait till then and just cross over at that point? Live it up right now, and then at the end, you can just buy your way out. But here, Jesus teaches that these two places cannot be bridged and you cannot cross from one to the other after death. That's scary. Number six, because of that, because you cannot bridge from one to the other after death, that means that we must believe in Jesus before we die. Verse 28, right? What does verse 28 say? The rich man says, I have five brothers, send Lazarus so that he may warn them. Why? Why do they need to be warned? Because once they die, they can't switch. Which means that we have to trust in Jesus before we die. Okay, how many in the room know when you're dying? First of all, that would be a terribly morbid thing to know. But how many of you know when that's happening? Do you see why sharing Jesus with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family is so important? Because what do we know true about the rich man and the poor man? They shared the same fate. What was it? Death. Guess what? We join in with them, don't we? Because one day we will be in the same spot. We will die. And we must trust in Jesus before we die. There is no second chance after that. Hebrews 9, 27, it was appointed man once to die and then the judgment. There's no second chances according to Jesus' teaching. We must trust in Jesus before we die, which means if none of us know when that's happening, it could be today. We're dealing with eternal things, aren't we? We're dealing with weighty matters. And I'll be honest with you, I've wasted a lot of my days on stuff that doesn't amount to anything. While my neighbors and my coworkers and my friends die. What number am I on? Seven. Judgment is against sin, according to verse 30. Thus, the need to repent. Again, I'll mention the separation between these two men is not because one had money and one didn't. The reason there's a difference between these two is because one repented, obviously, and one didn't. That's why he says they 
In the discussion about his brothers, Abraham says, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he says, no, they didn't even listen to Moses and the prophets. Even the rich man knows what they need is not to get rid of their money. What they need is to repent, turn away from their sin. And thus sin is the issue at stake. So we have two different lives. They both die, two different destinations, and two pleas for mercy and family. What does this bring us to? How do, we, how do we round this out? Why does this matter? Well, what it means, I believe, is that every one of us in this room who is a Christian, we have one life to give. We're not, we're not going to get a second run at this. We have one life. How are we using it? If death settles this thing and there's no moving back and forth, how does that motivate how we live every day? How does that motivate us around the people that we know don't know Jesus? And if they were to die, according to this teaching and what the rest of the scriptures teach, they would go into a, a separation from God forever. And if we're only given this one life, the question is how are we going to use it for God's glory? And I believe the best way we can use this life is to bring every single part of it under submission to Jesus and his mission. To tell everyone we possibly can that while this is what sin brings, separation from God, anguish, torment, suffering, what Jesus brought through his life, death, and resurrection was comfort and hope and peace and life everlasting in the presence of God to be comforted by him for all time. And oh, how I needed to hear it when I was in college. And oh, how the people in our families and in our friends need to hear this. We have one life, one chance. How are we using it for the glory of God? My prayer is that we're found praying our guts out, building relationships with lost people, and sharing the good news that Jesus died to rescue them from the deserved wage of their sin, which is separation from God forever. That we would want to proclaim that as much as possible, not so we can pat ourselves on the back but so that God would get glory from one more person worshiping him. I don't want to see a single person die and go into a Christless eternity. I want to see everyone trust in him, to see their desperate need and to call out to him and repent. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here and you just assumed God was going to let you in because you were from the south or you had a good family or you did a good job or you didn't do a lot of bad stuff on the weekend. Maybe you thought God was going to make an exception and let you by. I want to show you as clearly as I can that God will not be manipulated. And he calls us not to clean up our act but to trust in Jesus. To repent of our sin, to turn away from that which is rebellion and to trust in him. And believe that Jesus is the king who died in our place. That his sacrifice pays for our sin.
And Christians in the room, maybe we need to repent before God of our lackadaisical witness. Ask God to help us to not let another day go by without sharing Jesus with somebody. Pointing somebody to the good news that forgiveness is found in him. My prayer is that all of us will be found in obedience to him, sharing the beautiful news that even though we didn't deserve this type of grace, he brought it through his son. We testify to lost people who are dead and don't know it that Christ has come to bring life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. And Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word that teaches us that this life is not all there is. And God, one day every single one of us will die. And God, in that moment, what will matter more than anything is not how much money did we have, how many possessions did we own, how much power did we accumulate. What's going to matter in that day, the only thing that's going to matter is have we trusted in Jesus for our forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray this morning that for every heart that is here, God, I pray that you would show them very clearly, God, that they cannot earn salvation. They cannot buy their way out of separation from you. And God, you haven't asked them to. But in your word, you have lovingly and graciously taught us that forgiveness is found because of your mercy and because of your grace. That God, you look on helpless sinners and rather than condemning us, you rescue us for your glory. And so Father, I pray every knee and every heart in this place would bow before you and trust that Lord Jesus, you are the only one who has paid for our forgiveness. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here trusting in themselves, God, draw them to yourself. Show them the good news of Jesus, and God, give them new hearts, God. Rescue them. Forgive them. And, Father, I pray that for every Christian in the room, that you would help us to see that this life is precious because we only have one of them. And God, may we use everything, may we leverage every opportunity in this life to point people to you and your goodness. To point people to the fact that in Jesus is the forgiveness of sin. And Father, I pray that we will do that with joyous hearts. Because it is a true blessing to be a minister for you. So Father, use us as a church to point people to your beauty and your glory rescue and save the people we love. God, for all the people we're praying for, for our one who we're praying for, God, save them, rescue them. Bring them your word. And God, cause them to repent. I ask you to do this, God, so that you might receive more glory and more honor. Lord, in this place this morning, help us to respond to you. That, God, we would see that you are the king we so desperately need. And, Father, we'll trust you for all the results. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.